everyone, welcome back to QSR Nation, your weekly source of food service marketing and business strategies for success. Here are your hosts, Josh, Beth, Tony, and Grant from the PFS Brands National Headquarters in Holt Summit, Missouri. Hey everybody, welcome back to QSR Nation. As always, we have Josh, Beth, Grant, and Tony here from the PFS Brands National Headquarters in Holtzump, Missouri to talk about food service marketing and business strategies for success. Today, we're really honored to have Jeff Hahn call into the studio today. He is the owner and research strategist for Apron Food PR. So welcome, Jeff. Great to be with you all. Thank you very much. Yeah, we're really excited to have you today. Um, now, can you kind of just go into your background a little bit and tell us how you got to be to where you are? Sure. I'm really a crisis communication specialist. I'm a PR training. I spent 15 years, believe it or not, in the semiconductor industry. And in semiconductor, you, it turns out you're working with some of the most toxic chemicals known to man. That's where I really learned how to create good crisis communication plans, understand crisis messaging, and really grew up um, over the past 29 years now reeling from one crisis to the next. And so uh, generally you would call me a PR guy, but my um, expertise, as it has turned out, has been crisis all through these years. And we help a variety of clients not only plan for crisis, but also respond to them. And uh, the, I always think about a few of our clients and uh, who are, for example, open 24-7, and I think to myself, did your mother ever tell you that nothing good ever happens after midnight? <laughs> yeah. well, well, she was right. <laughs> Not much does. No, that's but, true. But you know, that's uh, good work for us. Yeah, for sure. Now, I know you talked a little bit about crisis communication and PR, but can you just kind of go a little bit more in depth of what exactly crisis communication is and why it's important, say, for like what we're in, the food service industry? Sure. Crisis communication as a practice is an extension of public relations. Now, on the promotion side of PR, we do work of that tries to, let's say, for example, introduce new menu items uh, for a restaurant brand. But there are incidents that occur in restaurants or with food brands that um, require protection. So the, the promotion protection is the same side of the coin, or two sides of the same coin. And it's the protection side that we use responsive messaging. You know, uh, interacting with the media to explain why an incident may have occurred. That could be anything from, you know, a, an incident on premises, like, for example, a Friday night football, post-football game food fight at a restaurant, or it could have to do with uh, food safety. Maybe there's, uh, uh, oh, you, you all remember, like last year, romaine lettuce was having such a hard time uh, in the market with uh, E. coli. So those kinds of issues are what get, get managed on the brand protection side of the PR coin. And that's really where crisis communication comes into play because we're typically responding very quickly uh, to news media that just wants a quote or they're covering an idea that just has to, that, that's, uh, you would refer to as breaking news. Awesome. So you mentioned a couple different items like the romaine lettuce, but do you have any really good examples um, of companies that every, obviously all of us have heard of that have had some incidents in the past, but then kind of how they laid out their plans and kind of um, rose up above all of that? 
Yeah, it's really interesting, and, and it's a great question because I think it's good to set up the idea that the way that I think about crisis communication, and especially as we study other brands, is not necessarily uh, what a company has done in terms of uh, mistakes, the mistakes that have been made, or even that they've stumbled into or that have occurred to them, not because of them. Um, I don't study motives very much. Instead, what I study are responsiveness and how a brand has responded to an incident. I'll give you a couple of good examples. Uh, Chipotle has had multiple food poisoning events the last three years. I've done an in-depth case study on how Chipotle has used particular themes in its messaging as it responds to these food poisonings. One interesting thing about Chipotle, they're very consistent about how they respond. They don't waver very much in the choices that they have. So it's, uh, it's fun to analyze that and say, aha, there's the pattern of messaging that they're using. Another good example is Bluebell Creameries, Bluebell Ice Cream out of Brenham, Texas. In 2015, Bluebell had the unfortunate experience of uh, listeria outbreak in its food products. Three people uh, died from that uh, food contamination incident. And examining how Bluebell responded to that through the news and to the public is really, uh, it's just a fascinating case study to understand not just the message, but also, these are my three M's, message, messenger, and the method of delivery. How did they get the word out? How did they protect their brand? So that's how I always tumble these incidents around and ask myself, what's the message, messenger, and method that are taking place here? Really interesting to study it and examine how successful brands are when they do that kind of responsive work. Well, and in today's world, I mean, as soon as something breaks, it becomes extremely viral as well. So, I mean, the responsiveness, you know, like you said, when you get into like that messenger category and the method, you know, who, who's responding to it and, and how um, it has to be very well timed and very well, you know, thought out because, I mean, you say the wrong thing and that could be even worse than uh, the actual incident. That's a fact. There's no question about it that at any one of those points, the message, messenger, and method, you can have a fatal mistake happen. It's because that um, as you go through a crisis situation, they're always new. Every time they're new. Um, there's another author named Eric Desenhall. He has a great book. Uh, I commend it to anyone who's interested in this subject called Glass Jaw. And Eric was asked the question in the book, why are companies, why are brands so bad at crisis communication? And his response was very simple. It's because it's not what they do. They don't, it's not something that they do enough to get good at. And that's actually probably a good thing if you think about it. But um, any one of those points on that 3M continuum can be a tripwire and uh, cause even more damage to a brand in the, in the aftermath of a crisis situation. Yeah, that's very true. Um, and those uh, exa uh, examples that you mentioned, Jeff, those are familiar, and it was kind of interesting to see those play out, you know, from from our standpoint, just 
um, since we're in that industry or in the food service industry just to see you know what they did um, to combat that but so basically uh, going off of that what's some advice you can give uh, for navigating those types of scenarios well I think about uh, just from a straightforward approach for any brand to protect itself well um, you have to set up a five-part strategy and when not if when a crisis situation hits you have to do five things and do five things really well in this sequence so here is my straightforward you can count them on one hand strategy first brands have to have rapid response teams that know how to activate they know how to get together you won't believe how challenging this is for some clients of ours they don't know what phone number to call no one knows where anybody is. They don't have a method of getting in touch with anyone. Uh, they don't know what conference room to go to. It's just Keystone Cops. They fail at the very first part of the strategy, just getting together and activating in a really short amount of time. Because here we're working in what I refer to as the TikTok box. When you have a bad break, a, a bad news break, you need to be able to assemble and activate a rapid response team within 15 minutes. If you don't have that capability, you're already behind the curve. That's what I mentioned a little bit earlier. Speed is the real enemy here. So we've got to activate well. That's step one. Step two, once you are assembled, you very quickly have to let your key stakeholders know that, that you're assembled. You're, you're together. You're aware of the issue. You're working on it. This is called a holding statement. And holding statements are simple. They, um, they should be fewer than 100 words, but they're critical to help external stakeholders know, okay, management knows what's happening. They are working it. Very shortly after that, here come my three Ms. Message, a messenger. You have to have a good spokesperson who knows how to manage, uh, especially media interviews or even know how to interact on social media if that's where the issue is taking off. And then your method of delivery. There's about 10 ways to get the word out once you're ready to spend your assets, get your message out. You gotta select carefully amongst those 10. I put them into a model and they range anywhere from issue statements on one end of the model to holding press conferences down at the other end. And there's a um, you know, variable of authenticity to one and control to the other. I'm not a fan of press conferences. Terrible idea. But sometimes that's exactly what is needed. And so these are the five things that in that sequence, if a brand can get them right, they can basically take control of their narrative in the press and on social and uh, navigate them from it through the rest of their crisis situation but those five things are hard to do well exactly and i mean so to really be able to execute those things is do you recommend any type of like preparedness scenarios uh, making sure that the you know those these people are pre-picked obviously for your rapid response team i mean you obviously never know what the crisis is going to be but i mean how do you go through the method of, and process of actually getting step one figured out so that you can rapidly gather together. 
you said the operative word, it's preparedness. Uh, rapid response teams can't be effective if there's no planning uh, or or foresight into the process of, of joining them together. It, uh, it's a good hygienic exercise for any brand to, number one, build a rapid response plan that contains team member information, their roles and responsibilities, um, a few examples of incidents that may affect the brand, and the way that you go through your messaging on those incidents. So we build uh, crisis plans for clients around those ideas. Every crisis plan has 12 elements to it. Helps a, helps a team know that it's not that the, a plan can actually help you navigate a specific issue. It's that the team knows that there's a way to move through it. And um, it's more about having confidence that, hey, we've got a way to do this rather than we know exactly what to say. Every issue, exactly right, is um, different. Every crisis has its own unique nuances. I think it's also important to note that once you have your crisis team like ready, they need to meet often and frequently, so that way there really isn't ever a surprise of everyone's roles. And obviously they're going to be assigning them, but just coming out with different scenarios and just having just the fake ones, so that way you can always feel prepared for any situation that does come up. Oh, yeah, totally right. In fact, I just spent the morning with another client writing up uh, simulator scenarios. These are evil and awful things that I write for clients to use. <laughs> <laughs> They're terrible. But um, for, you know, like an hour every quarter, the three members of that rapid response team get around the table and say, so they, they simply ask themselves two questions. What would we do and what would we say? They don't write it down. They just get in the habit and practice of asking and answering those two questions. Well, and, and, and they, that, I was going to say that active role play, you know, can help create that almost a natural response so that you know that it's it's not mechanical, but it's a lot more fluid in the event. Exactly. Well, like you said, not when, but if, or not if, but when um, it actually happens for that particular business. Exactly right. The the effective part of the practice is getting to know each other's styles and getting used to watching your counterparts respond, squirm a little, maybe sweat a little. But once you know that, you can strengthen one another's weaknesses on the team. And so that's the utility in even having an hour a quarter to sit down and push yourself through it. Most of our clients will do an annual half-day simulator. Uh, th those get really intense. Uh, they're terrific fun for us, but uh, <laughs> the clients the, <laughs> the clients hit our guts after the, we leave. <laughs> no, you, they first, you know you did your job right. Yeah. <laughs> Absolutely. But um, uh, there's never perfection. There's only preparation. Well, and I'm sure you're going to be covering a lot of this in your upcoming book, Breaking Bad News, that's due out in early 2020, right? Everything goes right. Uh, it should be out January 2020. Might be a little earlier, but um, I'm not. I'm not going to be that hopeful. Um, <laughs> it's in Breaking Bad News. I walk down through ten essential crisis communication models that help reputation managers make really fast decisions about their message, 
meth, uh, messenger and method of delivery. That sounds great. We're definitely going to have to pick up a copy of that um, in early 2020. You said, will that be on? Where, where can we find that at? Do you know yet? I think we're going to be, uh, we'll have our own website. We're going to work to get on Amazon, all those things. But, right. y'all, I'll, I'll just send you, like, 65 boxes because I don't think anybody's going to want to buy it. <laughs> <laughs> it's too I don't depressing. Know about that. I don't know. Have you watched the evening news? It seems like our country's addicted to bad news. Yeah. This could be a bestseller very quickly. <laughs> Jeff, so is, uh, is the name of the book, is that a play on the TV show? Were you a big fan of that? I had to ask that question. <laughs> Love that TV show, but for copyright purposes, no. My title has nothing to do. Heck no. <laughs> Good answer. So I know you gave a little, um, little background to the book. You don't have to give the book away, obviously. But our, um, what are some musts that, that, that you might take away from this book for reputation management? I know you kind of hit on that already. Yeah, there are a few really key things, and uh, the book is built around the notion of speed. So we call them rapid response teams, not crisis management teams. We talk a lot in the book about making really fast decisions inside of the fog of a crisis. And I don't know, you all have experienced pretty significant emotional events in your life. Uh, Maybe it's a a death in the family or a breakup where you're really out of sorts, that's the worst possible place in which to try to make decisions, especially decisions that have big consequences. Yet that's where brands find themselves inside of this, what I refer to as uh, cognitive dissonance, and they're having to navigate very complex problems. And so I line my model up against each of the problems they need to address and then provide models that allow you to make very fast decisions. I'll give you a really good example. There's an author, he's an academic named William Benoit. Dr. Benoit is the inventor of a theory, it's a typology called image repair theory. And in image repair theory, you effectively have five responses to one question. Are you getting blamed? Are you going to accept blame? Or are you going to reject blame? If you accept it, then you've got uh, three responses. If you reject it, then you've got two responses. And there's nuances as you go down. But you can imagine, I've put this into flowchart form in the book, um, you can make very fast decisions and get to the right general orientation for your messaging through that model. So image repair theory and typology from Dr. William Benoit, one of the best. Oh, it's amazing. And then I add three or four other models in in terms of preparing your messenger. And uh, the model that we use there is called the predictive interviewing model. In predictive interviewing, what we've learned, I examined 505 radio interviews over two and a half years ran a statistical program down through to, to analyze the trend lines in there and found out something that I didn't know, but most reporters would admit if you put the question to them. And it's this. Reporters ask six types of questions in a predictable order in every interview. Wow. You know that pattern, you can very quickly get your messenger ready for any kind of event. 
That's true. No, that's very. That, that's definitely great advice. I know. Um, all this reminds me of like watching Scandal or like Disney Survivor, like the political crisis management teams that they have. That seems to be a lot in common. <laughs> well, I, you know, I've had people ask me about that. Are you like the Scandal girl? I said, I'm not even close to being that attractive. So there's no comparison. But you know what? You bring up a great point that's sometimes for people who do crisis com work, um, that's a little exasperating. In 60 minutes or 90 minutes on those shows, those quote-unquote fixers uh, do some, they pull some rabbit out of the hat and they fix something. Uh, that's actually fiction. And <laughs> when clients come to us and say, you need to fix this, they obviously have been watching too much TV. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Crisis events, unfortunately, have to be navigated. They can't just be, there's no silver bullet. And it's, um, it's the same in human relationships. We do bad things, we have to do good things to make up. Brands have the same problem. They've got to uh, sometimes uh, embrace and admit to the fact that they've done something bad, uh, and then they have to do good things. But a lot of times, bad things happen to them from the outside. You know, um, I talked about Bluebell earlier, um, but let me come to Bluebell's defense. In the last couple of weeks, they've had um, two incidents where customers inside of a Walmart, two different Walmarts, one of them was in Lufkin, I can't remember where the other was, but uh, customers are taking the lids off of Bluebell ice cream, licking the top of the ice cream and putting the lids back on and putting them in the freezer. Uh -huh. Now, this is, uh, that is horrible. That's an <laughs> enormous food safety problem. And um, is it Bluebell's fault? No. And how does Bluebell respond? How can they respond? And so you can see that there are incidents that are created by a brand, sometimes that they're subjected to by others. Right. And they just have to be able to respond to both. Just for the record, I've now become lactose intolerant. <laughs> <laughs> Good idea. But it's not Bluebell's fault. No, it's not. <laughs> oh, you weren't the one licking it, Tony? Yeah. No, it was not I. Not I. I... I no. <laughs> and, you know, it's, uh, I think in our industry, what we worry about with QuickServe and all kinds of other food brands is that the, um, there is this really interesting trend in the consumer space where people are more and more, their senses are heightened, they're more interested in knowing their food source, where did this come from, uh, and things like uh, best buy, sell by, freeze by dates are more important. Consumers appreciate the transparency, but my guess is, if I'm looking at my crystal ball, there's a lot that consumers don't want to know about the transparency of where their food has come from. We're going to find over the next 12, 18 months, especially with technologies like blockchain really coming into the marketplace, that um, we're, we're going to find a level of transparency that people appreciate but if you go too far, they actually, it's a turnoff. So brands are going to be searching for that, um, how much is enough, how much is too much, and knowing and understanding the, the traceability of your food products is going to be an interesting thing to watch. It'll affect the crisis comm world as well. Well, absolutely. Yeah. yeah, I mean, 
once you have that knowledge and accessibility to it, you know, that is where, and unfortunately in the world that we have so much accessibility to technology and we can you know, rapidly um, either share information, whether it be true, skewed, or false, um, once you get consumers' accessibility to that level, then it's about, you know, how, how will they react? Yeah. Uh, I mean, McDonald's went through the whole pink slime thing, you know, and, and anymore it's like a joke, um, but people still buy the chicken nuggets because they don't want to know about the pink slime. You know, they just want to get their nuggets and go. And so, I mean, there, there's, a, there's almost a, an inerrant danger of uh, too much knowledge is not a good thing. It's so true. We don't know how to process it. That's why we rely on others, experts, to tell us what is um, the negotiated reality, the negotiated truth of these things. And it's going to, I think, another trend line that we're seeing in this transparency era that we're in is more and more uh, food brands are issuing recalls. Uh, Last I averaged out, the last two years, there was 1.1 food withdrawal recall or safety alert per day in the last two years. Wow. Brands are getting more and more, I think, um, conscious. Paranoid's not fair, but they're conscious that, you know what, we better withdraw uh, or issue a safety notice um, for the benefit of the doubt, uh, just to make sure, because they're worried that even... Uh, minor in- issues might turn into major brand problems because consumers don't know how to interpret the information. That is the drawback of social media a lot of times, is that Absolutely. it's consumers making those opinions. And it's not necessarily true, but if you have a couple big influencers that don't necessarily understand what they're saying, it causes an entire crisis for a brand. No question about it. And, you know, you know especially on social, um, reporters these days, tend to begin writing stories or even on TV setting up broadcasts because they see a topic trending on social. So they're not leading the news, they're following opinion. And that opinion may be based on a completely false assertion, uh, a completely false piece of information. So it's really a challenging environment. Well, it's, you know, it's headline journalism anymore. I mean, the number of people who don't actually read through an article, don't research, look for facts, they don't, um, you know, they, they don't want to. You know, they just they want to take that assumptive headline that may have nothing, you know, factual in it in those, you know, eight, nine words and just run with an opinion just right there. It's the instant gratification society we have. You know, that's another, you know, brand damaging aspect that, you know, I'm sure that, your your firm has to deal with you know probably regularly is you know that just generates crisis when even there is none totally right you know to your point one of the other studies i did for breaking bad news was to examine that question of speed and attention span what i found in looking at 2811 headlines in the news, oh, I guess it took me about two years to do that part of the study, was that the average length of a soundbite is 8.95 seconds. Now, that gives you a sense of the amount of attention span that we as consumers of information actually give to a news article. 
just under 10 seconds. How much can we really know? How much do we really want to know until we repeat it to somebody else? Yep. Exactly. That's a challenge. That number's probably only going to get shorter, too. Yeah. <laughs> you know, it's a, good, it's a good point. It's actually been pretty stable. The reason that I was interested in doing my study is because back in 1990, a guy by the name of Dr. Dan Hallen, University of California, um, he did a similar study on political sound bites, and he watched uh, just like 200 videotapes of uh, politicians running for president um, and saw a degradation in time over 30 years. And Hallen's study pretty much said, you know what, um, it's about nine seconds. My study, um, a completely different method, came to 8.95. So, yeah, I think the two of us be, are like, providing the similar data point. We're kind of at the minimum amount of time right. where you can convey an idea, uh, and then people stop to paying attention to it. Right, yep. Which is just un fathomable to me i mean that i'm a person who i I click it i read it i want to know and i mean it's i don't know it's a personal tangent i won't get on about irresponsibility (laughs) but i mean to just be able to take nine seconds and and make a decision that could impact you know the employees of a brand um the shareholders of a brand you know and that brand may be a presidential candidate or it may be ice cream but whatever that brand is you know to make those quick assumptive uh, judgment calls without giving any thought to it is is crazy but then like you said you, you've also got to have that response that's quick that's going to satisfy that same nine second attention span to navigate the narrative um, back to you know at least reality whether it's accepting responsibility for something that is truthful or whether it's you know like you said rejecting that responsibility because it's a false narrative you know, nine seconds is not a lot of time retention span to try and change someone's mind. Yeah, exactly. And um, you mentioned pink slime a little bit earlier. There's a great example of a single phrase that um, cratered IBP. I mean, it was uh, a tremendous financial loss for the company. They actually sued ABC News and recovered a bunch of money from them for defamation, but the damage was done. That very quick soundbite set in people's minds because it was alliterative. It was interesting to listen to. And all of the experts in the world, all the scientists, all the people that um, the brands who were using uh, that finely textured beef, they wanted to trot them out onto the news to try to, quote, set the record straight. Sorry, not interesting, too late. Well, and that's and that's sad because you know you have such a small window to reply in and yep. to try and capture that and sometimes like in that case you know the damage is done and it's irreversible so then it's a matter of new crisis is how do we move forward as a company which should be your next book probably <laughs> <laughs> well breaking bad news um right now is really aimed at food industry but I might franchise the book a little bit. It'll be <laughs> breaking bad news for for the airline industry. I think they could use some help. Yeah, they definitely <laughs> <need> some help. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> you can pick another one, uh, and I'll just keep writing case studies, <laughs> re-releasing the book. 
<laughs> so I do have a random question. How do you combat the issue, especially because of the um, just the news lines that people always have whenever they're trying to report the breaking the breaking news? Is whenever someone says that this so and so company did not respond to comment or we couldn't get in touch with them, how do you beat that? Because a lot of times it's not necessarily that they've tried or they've only tried the one time, but that also really lowers your rep or your. Um, I'm gonna try. What's the word I'm looking for? Your reputation. Reputation. Credibility. <laughs> and your credibility. Credibility, yes, that's the word. It really lowers yep. your credibility whenever someone hears that. And whenever you do have nine seconds to try and, you know, convey someone's opinion and they hear that, they already think, well, they didn't care. Obviously, they're trying to hide something. Great question. And my response to that is, today, you have to make your own news. Uh-huh. The way that you make your own news is when you have a Breaking Bad News event, um, You've got to activate not only your rapid response team, but also you have to light up your own news-making channels. You can make news and post news on your own digital newsrooms. Yep. You can um, use your social channels to very quickly push your message out to your stakeholders. You can use uh, devices like YouTube and quick-shot videos to do your own interviews. We refer to these as in-house interviews. And my team, we've got three reporters on my team here. We'll send a, one of our former reporters to go interview a client, ask tough questions just like a real reporter would. Then we edit the video in case the client needs to do a take two, a take three to get their message right. Edit that video, post it up on their uh, broadcast channel, up on their digital newsroom. So, yes, you might have that moment where a lazy news outlet who hasn't even tried to get in touch with you. This has happened to me several times. Uh Um, They'll say, oh, it could not be reached for comment. The reason that the brand couldn't be reached for comment is because the news, the media outlet never even tried to reach it for comment. Exactly, yeah. Yeah. I read read somewhere uh, this week, I think, it it was just like a statement that said, uh, control the news or it controls you, and that's kind of what you're getting at right there, right? (laughs) You got it. You've got to make your own news and have your own Uh, basically your own broadcast hub ready to roll to light up when you need it. These have been referred to, especially, I guess maybe the term has gone out of of vogue lately, but we used to call these dark sites. You would just have on, as part of your web architecture, you would have a dark page that you'd activate only in times of crisis. And then all news would get referred to that page. All inbound questions, all stakeholders, just send them to that one page where you're able to control your own narrative. That's invaluable advice right there. I mean, especially in today's you know, world where everyone has a website, you know, every brand has something there. I mean, to have that you know, PR release page to direct people to you know, right away so you can control that narrative, post that right up there so it kind of kills the the no response available and if someone still reports that you, know, you can always say well if they would have you know looked in the right spot that the response was actually provided already yeah exactly and you can then send the link to your own newsroom to the tv stations and uh... rather than putting yourself your spokesperson your ceo again they don't do this every day they're not good at it um, instead of putting them up in front of a bank of microphones with a reporter shouting questions at them um, do control uh, control your 
brand, protect it from all of that mess. Uh, do your own broadcast work. But here's the other challenge in that. You can't treat broad, the, your own newsmaking hub as an advertising platform. This is where some of our clients, um, I have to keep pulling them back into reality because they take their newsrooms that we set up and they say, okay, if something goes wrong, we're going to be posting news and driving traffic to this site. Well, in between time, they turn those sites into basically marketing uh, platforms. They're creating content that is all unicorn and rainbows all the time, and it un unfortunately loses credibility. So we have to be really careful not to abuse a digital newsroom. It really is for reporters, um, and you've got to treat it that way so that when it, you need it, it's, uh, it is, has some credibility of its own. Well, I tell you, Jeff, there's been a lot of great, great advice and awesome conversation. Now, uh, we do have, uh, as we kind of wrap up here, we call it kind of our, I think Grant refers to as our big three. Big three, yeah. <laughs> so, so these are our rapid fire questions for you. Gonna, <laughs> yeah, right on. Okay, it. so I, I need to have 8.95 second responses. Exactly. <laughs> and you're on the clock, go. No, I'm just kidding. <laughs> Okay, so I know you've mentioned a couple of books already, like Last Jaw, and then obviously your book that's going to be coming out, hopefully in January, which is Breaking Bad News. But what's another book that you would recommend for any type of crisis communication and getting prepared? Eric Desenhall has a second one called Damage Control that I like, but I'll tell you my favorite and most fun book. It's called Scapegoat by a guy named Charlie Campbell. It's an entire history and method of how we blame each other for things that we did wrong. Wonderful for crisis communicators. Awesome. awesome. I have to look those up. That was 8.75 seconds very good. <laughs> All right, second question. Um, what is one industry trend that you see for the upcoming year, and that could be uh, relating to food service or just business in general? I think we talked a little bit about this earlier, that notion of transparency, and the trend will be how brands – find the right balance between being too transparent and not transparent enough. That's going to be a continuing experiment as we go into 2020 and the next several years, especially as blockchain opens up the opportunity for traceability to become much more e easily accessed. Awesome. Well, and the last question that I have for you is, what is one piece of advice that you would give to someone who is starting up in food service? You know, they're a fresh entrepreneur getting into this game regarding crisis management. What would you say, hey, this is something you've got to have in place? From a crisis communication standpoint, my advice is simple. Once a quarter, sit down, think up a bad idea or a bad news break, and then ask yourself the two questions. What would we do? And what would we say? I sometimes refer to that as the Dave Matthews Band question, what would you say? <laughs> Just play that little tune in your head. Go through an exercise uh, and get a couple of friends around the table if you're in a startup mode and ask, what would we do and what would we say? It's a good thing to think about, especially because brands are vulnerable these days to all kinds of situations. Yeah, it's not something you want to plan for, but it's something you need to plan for, right? And uh, preparation is better than perfection. Right. No, that's that's great advice for sure. Uh, that's any any of our retailers out there need to be on that piece of yes. advice. Probably. <laughs> yes. um, now, Jeff, uh, if somebody reach, wants to reach out to you uh, for more information about what you're doing and what's going on, how, where can they find you at? Find me at Apron Food PR, 
that's where our um, uh, you can find all of our contact information, and you can listen to the Breaking B- Bad News podcast, oh, which will link oh. to you all. <laughs> yeah, yeah we, awesome. Every month we do a Recall of the Month podcast, which uh, picks a recall out of the universe of recalls, talks about it, how the media treats it, and how the brand responded. So I hope people will enjoy that. And we'll link back and forth to y'all because yeah. we love your podcast as well. Oh, thanks. Thank you. You're making us blush over yeah. here. <laughs> <laughs> no, we really appreciate you coming on the show. We'll include a URL to your website, obviously, with the podcast. And um, another shout-out for your new book coming out, Breaking Bad News, in 2020. Be on the lookout for that. Um, anything else you guys want to add? Thanks for coming on. Yeah, this has been a great conversation and one that I think probably doesn't get thought of like it should. And like you said, once a quarter – um, you know, folks, start putting it on the calendar. Make your plans. Yeah. Hold your meetings, and just be prepared. Be prepared. Very exactly. good. All right, Jeff. Once again, thanks very much for coming on the podcast this week. I enjoyed it, y'all. Stay cool. Yeah. All right. <laughs> and for all the listeners out there, we'll talk to you next week. Today's episode is brought to you by Blue Taco. It's the franchise your location needs for simply Southwest goodness. Visit our website at thebluetaco.com. And remember, it's BLU. Be sure to stop by next week for another episode of QSR Nation. And be sure to check us out online at pfsbrands.com forward slash podcast.